Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's so great to see your faces uh, on this uh, wonderful kickoff of our Hartman Learning. Uh, Amy just shared with me before uh, we started that this is our 40th Hartman Zoom during the pandemic. And when you think about that, that is just uh, such a remarkable number. Uh, 40 times we have gotten together during this dark season of pandemic to do the light of Torah and the light of community and the light of connection. So first, I just wanna thank Amy and Brian for being our Hartman uh, energy initiators. I wanna thank um, Hartman for being such a partner and such a source of light during the darkness. And also it's like one thing to do a lecture or two lectures but it's an entirely different level of commitment to be with a, a partner organization across the seas 40 times during this pandemic. So we're so grateful to Hartman. Wanna thank Sarah Labaton, who's on the call as well. She's the director of teaching and learning at Hartman and Sarah, we're so grateful for your connection. And now I just wanna talk about and thank Misha Alcion. Um, all of you have uh, at least two connections to Michelle, even if you don't know it. Number one, um, I'm bet I'm betting that most everyone on this call has used his Haggadah uh, for the contemporary voices that he co-authored with his father, uh, Rabbi Noam Tzion. I know that we have personally made Michelle Tzion very rich because we have bought, you know, 50, 60, 70 of those Haggadah over the years. They're best in class. So, Michelle, thank you for the Haggadah. Second, most of us have worked with his dad. Noam came here before the pandemic 100 years ago and, and actually did a workshop on Pesach, and he's also taught Zoom classes. But this is, uh, in honor of our 40th session, our first time ever getting to actually learn with Michelle Tzion. So, Michelle, I was uh, wondering if you could just say a word about yourself, um, and, then, um, and then if you could say a word about why we're teaching, uh, why you're teaching us what, we're, what you're going to teach us, which is about the ethical dilemmas, and then just jump right in to your program. So who you are, why the subject, and then go for it. Wonderful. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi West. It's great to be with all of you this morning. Um, I'm actually calling in from uh, the West Coast. We're in Berkeley for the year. Um, so the hour right now is 7 in the morning. But it's good to start the week with some good learning. You might see some sleepy children wander in behind me, so I apologize in advance. Um, but as Wes said, my name is Michael, and I'm actually from Jerusalem, despite my nice American accent. I grew up in Jerusalem, um, very much at the Hartman Institute, where my father, Noam, has been teaching, I think, since the founding uh, of the Institute. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to be able to join this group, which I've heard a lot about, and um, in, which I've seen at the Mahon over, over the different years. Um, in many ways, uh, I have the same bug of passion of doing Jewish study um, in that, that my father has and my grandfather has. Um, and more than anything, I think for me, what's always been important about Jewish study is that Jewish education and Jewish identity start at home. They start in the conversations and the decisions uh, that we make at home around our family table, in our kitchen, in our living room. Um, and that's part of what I want to study together with you. What I want to do is to look back on this year and a half that we've all had having to make ethical decisions that we've never had to face before at home. Um, I understand this is the beginning of the first session of a whole series on ethics. 
um, led by the Hartman Institute and Temple Emanuel. And what I wanted to do is actually look at not the great ethicists of the past or the big ethical questions of war and politics, but in the way that each one of us over the last year and a half have had to become experts in medical ethics and social ethics and Jewish ethics um, in our own homes, uh, in our own relationships with very little guidance, with very little uh, background and preparation. Uh, very few of us have experienced a global pandemic before. Um, and yet we had to make decisions on the fly about ourselves, about our families, about our communities. And that's what I want to focus on, put a spotlight on, um, and in some ways celebrate, um, because we have really gone through quite a process, each and every one of us. Um, so I want to use this time to help you reflect on that in your own lives, maybe as a community, um, and also look at two sort of luminaries of this question. I think two people who have really helped thousands of people um, in Israel, in the Jewish world, and around the world, face these questions. Um, two ethical leaders, Rabbi Osher Weiss, who's a halakhic decisor from Arnok, um, and uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah, the author of The Ethicist in the New York Times. I don't know if you're the kind of person who reads more of the New York Times on a Sunday morning or more of halakhic literature on a Saturday night, but either way, we are going to combine the two because I think they are asking the same kinds of ethical questions, and I think it's a very fitting um, way to do Hartman contemporary study, where we bring the best of modern resources and the best of traditional Jewish resources and show that they're really having the same conversation. It's the same conversation that's going on in our head and heart as well. Um, before we jump in, I'll say just two more words about myself. Um, I'm, the, uh, I'm an educator both at the Hartman Institute and also at the Mandel Foundation um, in Jerusalem, which also has some good Boston connections, um, and also the founder of a minyan in Jerusalem called the Klausner Minyan. So if you're ever in the neighborhood of Tapiot, you're welcome to come join us for a, it's a partnership minyan. Um, we have about 100, 120 families and many of the questions that I've been had to ask over the pandemic of the last year and a half is, right, how do you lead a, a synagogue that uh, prides itself on having young children run in and out of synagogue? Um, what do you do suddenly when the singing together means spreading together? Uh, when the 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 um, very sources of life for us of singing together and davening together and joining as a multi generational community suddenly become things that are most dangerous to us. So facing those questions as a community rabbi and also just as a as a as a family person have really made me think a lot about this um, about this question. So this is some of what I wanted to share with you. Um, and I'll just say that I'm spending this year in Berkeley, so in a time zone closer to the Boston time zone than the Jerusalem one. Uh, we're here on sabbatical where my wife is uh, at the Stanford and UC Davis for the year. But it's a great opportunity also for me to connect back to sort of North American Jewish life and what's happening here. So I'm excited to be teaching for Hartman on the West Coast and also thanks to Zoom um, on the East Coast as well. Um, I don't know if you are totally sick of speaking about the pandemic, if you are totally sick of studying on Zoom. Um, <clears throat> I know that at times I am as well. But I think that um, as this summer has, uh, has uh, waxed and waned, uh, as we started the summer thinking the pandemic was behind us, I think about the 4th of July, we were all feeling like it's over, we won. And then slowly as summer set in, we realized it's not over at all. Um, Thinking about how what we have done in the last year and a half and reflecting back on this time, I feel is extremely important. And one of the reasons why I feel is especially important has to do with the following picture. Let me just 
which the first time that I saw this picture, I was sort of uh, quite shocked and dismayed. And you've seen pictures like this before. These are people from 100 years ago, right, going through the Spanish flu, uh, publicizing that you should wear a mask because not everyone wanted to do that. And these pictures of the 1919 Spanish flu, 1918, 1920, almost exactly 100 years ago, um, we've been seeing them a lot in our newspapers and on the Internet, and they seem to be shared a lot because there's something shocking to realize that 100 years ago, people were going through and experiencing a pandemic very similar to our own. And yet, at least for me, I'd barely heard about it. These aren't pictures that I had seen. It wasn't part of the history classes that we had learned or paused to reflect on. And it made me wonder, why is it that we uh, are so quick to ignore and forget pandemics? There are all kinds of explanations about why we forgot the Spanish uh, uh, flu. I know that one of my school members told me uh, early on in the pandemic, as everyone was restudying about the Spanish flu, that he suddenly discovered that his maternal grandfather had passed away of the Spanish flu at age 31. But that was never part of the information. He knew that his grandfather passed away at a young age, but he never knew why. And suddenly recognizing that that had happened as part of a, uh, a global pandemic was very meaningful to him. And we often say that we forgot about the Spanish flu because of World War I, and there's so much to learn, and who has patience for 1919 anyway? Um, but I think there's another reason. And I think uh, the other reason that we forget about pandemics is that there isn't any clear enemy. There isn't anyone that we can blame. Um, and if there is, it's an invisible one that's really hard to see. And also, there's a collective responsibility that doesn't notice any of the usual circles of identity. There, it isn't a national issue or a, a, or a, a political issue, or it shouldn't be in, a, in any case. It's really just a, a global situation. And finally, um, from what I've been reading, people love to forget pandemics because once the pandemic is over, we just want to run back into life. We want to rush back and stop thinking about this flat time of our lives where we had to shelter in home and cover our faces. We want to rush back into all the excitement of community and connection and professional world and move forward. And yet I think that especially the time like this where we're still sort of moving back and forth between moving forward and still being stuck in the pandemic, it's really important for us to reflect back on this time and think about um, what has happened and also to tell the story of this pandemic for ourselves, for our children, uh, for our grandchildren, so that pictures um, like this one and like the ones that we have of our family events and weddings and, and, and the experiences we've had in the last year and a half, that our grandchildren grow up with these stories um, so that it's part of the collective memory, so that next time this happens, people have something to fall back on. And I think that's a big part of, um, of what Jewish learning has always taught us, that we need to weave our contemporary experience into our current lives. Um, which brings me to the second picture that I wanted to start off our session with, um, and that's of the following book. A few months ago, when I, when I was still living in Jerusalem, uh, I took a group to Bnei Brak. Uh, Bnei Brak was the center of the pandemic in many ways um, for a certain period of time in Israel. Um, and walking into a, a bookstore in, 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 in Bnei Brak the, at the beginning of the summer, the pandemic was felt like it was behind us, and suddenly I saw the following book. Uh, in a Jewish bookstore. And this is just a classic Jewish book with its beautiful gold letters and the fake leather covering. Uh, and it's a halachic book of literature by a rabbi called Asher Weiss, who's an up-and-coming uh, a, a rabbi in Jerusalem. We're going to spe be speaking about him. 
But something on the cover of it, I noticed something that you wouldn't expect to see on a on a Jewish holy book, and that's the shape of the uh, of the coronavirus. Those sort of spiky that spiky circle, and it says in Hebrew, Magifat HaKorona. And when I saw this, I got very excited. I'd, I'd read some of Rabbi Usher Rice's responsa um, eh, during the pandemic, but and I was excited to buy this book. But the truth is, I didn't want to buy the book because of the content of the book. I'm a much more shallow person than that. I wanted to buy the book because of its cover, because I thought how fitting it would be that as part of the Jewish library that I have at home, those books, brown books with fake leather and uh, fake gold letters, that there would also be a book that says on it, Magifat HaKorona, the coronavirus pandemic, that this is part of making um, what happened in this last year and a half part of our Jewish memory, um, part of our cultural memory. So if you look at Rabbi West's library behind him, and he has all these uh, important Jewish books, there should be a book about the pandemic as well, so that the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel in 100 years will be able to pull it out next time, God forbid, there's a pandemic, and say, okay, we've done this before. Um, and I think that part of asking why, um, uh, part of what, when I think back on these two pictures, this book with the coronavirus on it and the picture of, 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 um, of 1919 with the masks on, I think for me, the emotion that these two pictures bring brings up is loneliness. That there's been a lot of loneliness in this past year. And that loneliness has a lot to do with the fact that we've had to shelter in place. Uh, and that our usual community connections have had to be stopped in so many ways, and our family connections have had to be stopped. But more than that, it's a loneliness about having to make decisions that we feel unmoored by, decisions that we feel alone, decisions that we feel like we should have had better footing, better grounding, better background in. And when we had to make these decisions, we had to make them alone. And I want you, I want to ask you, invite you to reflect for a second on some decisions that you might have made in your own families or communities, places of work, uh, extended families, uh, in grocery stores, about how are we going to behave during this pandemic? Um, and as you think about them, I want to invite you to wonder sort of as you made those decisions, how did you make them? Who did you turn to? How did you know what was right? What information was important and pertinent and what information was not actually helpful in this time? Um, and what range of emotions uh, or perhaps a social dynamics were brought up by those decisions? I, I want to give one example or two examples for me um, just to jog your memory. And as I raise this, I want to invite you to write in the chat. Um, there's always an awkwardness about Zoom sessions. If we were in a room together, we could smile at each other and just raise your hand and we could have a whole round of stories. Um, but I want to invite you to use the Zoom chat. This is the 40th Hartman session on Zoom. So you're, you, some of you are more experienced at this already. So I want to invite you to use the chat and just share one brief anecdote or one sentence of a dilemma, uh, a pandemic dilemma that you've had um, over this past year and a half. I'll share two of mine as you're thinking about your own. Uh, one is very early in the pandemic, uh, uh, a little bit after Purim, um, I picked up my kids from my mother's house. She usually picks them up on Thursday afternoon. Um, and I picked them up and then she wanted to give me a hug as she opened the door. And I told her, you know, mom, I think I shouldn't give you a hug. And I could see on her face how hurt she was by that. And she was like, what? All this talk about uh, some disease, like you can't, uh, you can't give your mother a hug with all the good Jewish guilt that you can imagine underlying that. 
Um, and I told her, you know what, from what I'm reading, from what I'm hearing, I think actually it's not a good idea right now. And by the way, this might be the last time that the kids come over to your house for a while. And I remember that conversation, how hard it was. And I wonder now, back now, what did I know? Who did I consult? Um, was it the right decision? Why, why were we on different footing? Why didn't she know everything I knew at the time? And was I fulfilling kibud avaen at that moment? Or, or was I actually transgressing it? Um, so that's one moment that, that I think a lot about. It's a small ethical moment, but it's a huge one in so many ways. Um, and the second question I'll, I'll just share with you, and I'm hoping this is jogging your own thoughts. Thanks, Martin, for, for writing in. Um, is a member of my shul in Jerusalem who's from Italy, um, and his father passed away in Rome. Again, early in the pandemic, and if you remember, the pandemic in Europe really started in a big way in Italy, and things were going crazy there. Um, and he was prepared to get on a plane to be at his father's funeral. His father didn't die from, from COVID. Uh, it was a natural death, but tragic as that he wasn't that old. Um, and, and, uh, very quickly, um, this congregant of mine discovered that he wouldn't be able to travel to Italy, that the funeral wouldn't happen in a regular way. And the question very quickly became, you know, how do you do a funeral on Zoom? He didn't even know what Zoom was. And I think, you know, I'm sure Rabbi West has had many of these questions since then, but just having that first question and sort of Italy is the first harbinger of that. Um, and his question really was, should I go to Italy? No, I won't be able to be with, him, to be with my mother and comfort her during this time. Or should I stay here to keep my family sick? Um, and just going through that question with him, which in a way was a halakha question, but it really was much more than a halakha question in so many ways, um, really brought home to me that this is going to be a time of some really intense uh, questions and decisions. So let's just take a moment of, of, of quiet now, and we can read what people have written in chat. And I would really love if you could write in chat. Um, if you're on and you're able to turn on your camera, it would be great to see your faces, Author for each other to see your faces. If you're multitasking and uh, jogging as we're doing this on your Sunday morning jog, that's also okay. Um, but if you're able to, please do turn on your camera so we can see each other um, and take a minute. Um, I'll read um, some of your comments. So I'm seeing some questions here about, about hugging. It's definitely that just such a basic human action and connection that's been hard for us to do. We're still not sure if to go back to it or not. Um, Josh is asking about singing with Cody Manuel after flying in from Atlanta. Um, Sanford is writing about visiting um, his mother. Um, and is it a last visit or not? Um, Michelle was writing about the emotional impact of teaching kids to stay away from others. Um, do we encourage our children to travel home from holidays or stay where they are? 
writes Amy. Um, Vicky writes about taking the whole family away on vacation for a week or not. Um, and if we do go, are we gonna spend our whole time worrying? Are we gonna be able to enjoy ourselves? Um, I'd help children uh, understand the need to wear masks and keep distance. And then what, how to relate to family members with different standards when it comes to COVID and vaccination. Um, you're welcome. Please do keep on writing. If, you were gonna, if you're in the middle of writing a, a, an anecdote or a question, we'll get back to those. But I'm also looking at the time. We have till about 11.15. Um, and what I want to do is go through um, a few questions and really in many ways, more than the answers, in this case, I'm interested in the questions. And I feel like looking back at those questions is in effect uh, a very educative moment for us as, as we do that. Um, you were sent the sources, I believe, or you should have them in some format on PDF. I'll be showing a PowerPoint presentation which has the same text, so you can follow along in the PDF you have, uh, or look on screen at the presentation. And if you, and I'll point out the page numbers as we go through it. Um, but let's study a little bit together. Okay, so the first source of questions I want to look at together with you is, as I mentioned, the book Minchat Asher. Minchat Asher is a series of books written by Rabbi Osher Weiss. This is the 30th book in the series, and they are collect his halachic responses and his Talmudic responses. Osher Weiss is in some ways a kind of classic ultra-Orthodox rabbi um, and writer, but in many ways he's not classic at all. Uh, he was born in America in 1957 in Borough Park, and he belongs to a small Hasidic community called the Kloisenberger Hasidim, uh, or Tzans. They're connected to the Tzans Hasidim, if you know those, or if you've ever been to Natanya, where they have a big neighborhood and a hospital. Um, and in many ways, he's also a very modern thinker connected to modern Orthodox Jews in many ways. Um, and he's sort of an up-and-coming uh, halachic authority. Uh, he's not that old yet. Um, but at the end of uh, Rav Ovadia's life, the great halachic decisor of the Sephardic world, he started sending people to ask questions of Rav Usher Weiss, um, and he teaches um, classes. And one thing that makes Rav Usher Weiss a, a special rabbi in these times is that he knows how to use YouTube. Um, and he, his classes are broadcast on YouTube, as many rabbis are. Um, as the pandemic started, he recognized the importance of very quick halachic information. And like many other halakhic decisors, uh, sent that out. You could see that the reform movement, the conservative movement uh, within the Orthodox world, a lot of information going out very quickly and new voices in some ways uh, coming out of the woodwork um, because they knew how to use technology and they knew how to read this pandemic quickly on. One of the things we'll see is that Rav Osher Weiss was ahead of the game in the pandemic because he is the rabbi of a hospital. He's the rabbi of the hospital Sharei Tzedek in Jerusalem, one of the most important hospitals in, the, in Israel. Uh, and that really put him at the forefront of, of a lot of the questions uh, that we've all been asking for the last year and a half. Um, um, and what I actually want to do together with you is to look at the table of contents of this book. Because when I opened up uh, the book and started reading through the table of contents, I have to say, um, I, I quickly realized that even though I had wanted the book just because of its cover, that actually the content of this book was very powerful. And just going through the table of contents and looking at the dates in which these questions were asked felt like a powerful 
uh, time travel through the last year and a half that we've had together. So what I want to do together with you is do something um, that I think is worthwhile in all kinds of ways, opening up books of halakhic literature and just going through the table of contents and just looking at what questions were people, were Jews asking during this time. Um, and you can really get a snapshot of Jewish life. So going back to this point that ethics is not just something that happens with the philosophers or the rabbis or the leaders. Ethics is something that happens in our living room, in our kitchen, in our inbox. Uh, the questions that we ask uh, are so important. Um, so let's read through a little bit of the table of contents. The translations are my own, and you can find the Hebrew online, by the way. If anyone's interested, I'm happy to, to send it to you. So the first chapter of the book is called Pikuach Nefesh and Proper Conduct During a Pandemic. It's kind of a general um, a, a chapter, and you can already understand that from the term Pikuach Nefesh, right, saving a life, um, that uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a Jewish framework through which to understand how we are to behave during the pandemic. And the first question he writes is about proper conduct during a pandemic. We're going to read that together uh, soon. How do I behave? What am I supposed to do? Uh, number two, to shelter in place or to flee the city? This is actually a quote from the Talmud. What do you do during the pandemic? Two options. Um, and I know in America, actually, a lot of people flee the city. Uh, and it's, a, it's continue, still happening in many ways. Uh, do I stay at home or do I run away to a different place? What's the definition of a plague is number question number three and really goes to the point of what's going on here? Is this a big deal or a small deal? Is this just a flu with good public relations as uh, one, uh, one Israeli doctor called it at the beginning? Or is this something different? Is this actually a plague, a magifying Hebrew? And then question number four, which is a big question uh, to this day, medical authority versus halachic authority. What is the relationship between those two types of authorities? Um, and we see that question playing out not only in Jewish tradition, but also uh, in America with different religions. Uh, the sort of tension between different types of authority that the plague has brought up. Um, and finally, for the opening of this chapter, obligations of hygiene and cleanliness and preventative medicine. Right. What are our obligations to stay clean? And so much of the beginning of the pandemic was just about sort of suddenly how hygiene became a front uh, uh, headline issue in so many ways. Um, we'll get back to number six, which is about Yisrael Salanter. Um, but I, I'm continuing to reading from seven and on, right? Seven, the pandemic is getting more serious. And suddenly you see questions that are scary even to read. Um, scarier if we wouldn't have just lived through them. Prioritization and saving lives. Experimental medicines for COVID patients. Two patients sharing a respirator. Um, danger trumps prohibitions. This is a term in Hebrew for the question of, are you allowed to do a biblical prohibition uh, in a time of danger? Right? Um, and then, Bikur um, Cholim during a pandemic. Someone wrote this, one of the chaplains here in the group mentioned this, right? I have a mitzvah of Bikur Cholim. I have a mitzvah to protect my life. Can I go visit someone during a pandemic? Um, saving lives during a pandemic, does it take priority over Talmud Torah? Do we close the yeshivot um, during this pandemic? By the way, do we close the campuses of higher education? Do we close the shul adult education class? Um, shaving a beard for a doctor is self-protection. There was a period of time when we were wondering if you should wear a mask, um, if, if, a, if having a beard prevents a mask being protective for you. So a doctor, actually a famous surgeon in Shari Tzedek writes to 
uh, Rav Osher and asked him, should I shave my beard in order for the mask to protect me better, uh, even though the beard is part of my Jewish identity in many ways? Um, 14 is one of the most um, uh, interesting questions I, I read in the book. How to respond to one who requests his body be cremated or donated to science? Let's just focus in on that question for a second. You might know a bit of the background of this. Jewish tradition frowns upon cremation uh, and believes very much that the body should return to the earth. We were made of earth, as we just read in the Parsha yesterday, and to the earth we should return. And the tradition of cremation and, the, and the, the custom of cremation really very early on was seen as a snub uh, to Jewish tradition and as pushback against the idea that we should return to the earth. Um, and so there's a very strong Jewish taboo uh, for a long time against cremation. Here, Rav Osher gets a question from um, a Baal Tshuva, a Jew who grew up not observant and became observant and writes to him, my father always wanted to be cremated. Now he's dying of COVID. And he told me, I know you uh, will have to make decisions about my body after I die. I'm dying of COVID. I want to be cremated. But the hospital just turned to me and said, that they would really appreciate if I could donate my body to science and specifically to COVID research, and that might save lives. Um, it's up to you, the father says to his observant son, uh, either one. Um, and the son writes to the rabbi and says, you know, I know that both of those are not, uh, a, not the traditional path of Jewish burial. Um, what do I do? Um, and the rabbi very gently sort of guides him through saying, look, neither of those are the traditional outcome. But if we look at which one of them would be preferable, one has the potential of saving lives uh, and the other one doesn't. Um, and so not only should donating the body to science um, be better than cremation, it might actually be a mitzvah in this situation. Um, so from the rabbi's perspective, choosing between two bad options from a traditional perspective but actually, once you think about the situation, suddenly something that before was frowned upon becomes, um, um, becomes a mitzvah in a different situation. We could go on and on this table of contents. The questions here um, relate to all kinds of moments that are asked um, um, within this. Um, question 19 is one that's especially interesting. Um, I think bringing tefillin into a hospital which will toss them out. This is a question that comes from England. There was a period of time when um, after people um, uh, died from COVID, the uh, hospital would throw away all their personal belongings because they weren't sure that any of those personal belongings wouldn't contaminate and pass the disease to other people. So someone writes, I'm going to the hospital. I want to take my fill-in with me so that I can wear them uh, during, the pan uh, uh, during my treatment but I'm afraid if something happens to me that they're going to burn my tefillin after I die. Um, should I bring my tefillin or not? Um, the rabbi answers that, that he should bring his tefillin and he's not responsible for what happens afterwards. Um, but of course, that this should be explained to the hospital um, so that it doesn't happen if possible. I'm going through the table of contents and I know in any other class, I would never go through a table of contents of, of a book. But I feel like in this case, there's something actually quite riveting about going through these questions, because it doesn't just make us think, oh, what was Rabbi Usher Weiss thinking? That's secondary to me. It actually brings me up, what were we thinking as this year has gone by? Um, so let's go into the next question. I'm having a problem. There we go. 
The second part of the book, as many books of Jewish responses deal with, it has to do with prayer and the holidays. Here's a list of questions that I'm sure anyone here who's a member of any committee at Temple Emmanuel has had to deal with over the last few months, right? Praying with a minyan, is it an obligation or is it a commandment? Should we encourage people to pray at home or should we encourage them uh, to join together in order to pray? Answering Kaddish by Zoom, something that has been happening a lot in the last 18 months and very few people did it before that. Um, counting a minion on porches. Um, this was a big question in, in heavily, um, heavily Jewish residential neighborhoods in Israel and in, and in America. If 10 people are standing on their 10 separate porches in a skyscraper, can they be counted as standing in one place together to be a minion or not? Um, this is actually a place where the Rabbi Osher Weiss and the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef, differed. The chief rabbi of Israel said, no, you can't count a minyan of 10 people standing on separate porches. They need to go downstairs to the parking lot to daven together. And Rabbi Osher Weiss said, no, you can count 10 people standing on 10 separate porches. You can even have one person reading Torah from his porch and someone else on a different porch getting an aliyah to uh, without even seeing the Torah scroll. Um, and in this case, actually, the chief rabbi of Israel conceded to Rav Osher Weiss's uh, position after a few months of heated debate. You can understand that the question at hand is actually, what is the risk of having 10 people meet down in the parking lot? If we tell people that their davening on a porch doesn't count, or in other communities that their davening on by Zoom doesn't count, then are we actually going to have people who are obligated to pray because they're saying Kaddish or because they feel that davening in Minyan is a daily obligation? Um, will they be at risk? of, of uh, contaminating each other. Um, question number five, may a Cohen refuse an aliyah to avoid infection? I found this to be a, a powerful question. A Cohen is at a minyan uh, during COVID. People are wearing masks, but the person reading Torah is not wearing a mask. Um, and uh, the davener is a Cohen. In other words, he's gonna be called up to be the first one to get an aliyah to the Torah. And he doesn't want to get an aliyah because he doesn't want to put himself at risk because this person reading Torah is not properly um, protecting himself and others. But as a Kohen, he has a responsibility to the community to have the first aliyah be performed by a Kohen. So can the Kohen says, no, thank you. I do not. I refuse to get this aliyah. Right. Um, two questions later is the flip side of the question. Can a rabbi or community decide to prevent someone who doesn't wear a mask? to serve as a chazan or teach class? Should Jewish communities start being the ones pulling the consequences, right? Giving punishments, basically, um, to people who are not performing, uh, not protecting themselves properly. Do we turn our communities that are supposed to be places of inclusion into a place of exclusion, basically in order to get people to be more careful on their, uh, about their behavior? I, I definitely felt this as a shul rabbi uh, when suddenly I'm the one who's supposed to start telling people, you know, put the masks over your nose or not. That's not a role that I ever wanted to be in. Uh, why are we suddenly, why did Jewish communities suddenly become, or prayer communities suddenly become places where we're noticing people's uh, personal hygiene? But these are the dilemmas that we've had. Um, in between there is a, is a painful question as well. Should one pray for the health of someone who in his negligence got sick? Basically, that's a question of what are the boundaries or the limits of our empathy? Um, and do we pray for someone who we feel it is their own fault that they got into the situation? Uh, Rabbi Osher says, absolutely, we pray for them. And we also pray for them to uh, see the light and to behave 
better as they do. And it's good to inform them that we are praying for them, um, but that we would hope that they are more responsible in the future. But he says at the end, we never stop praying for anyone, no matter what their behavior was and what we might think for the connection between their behavior and, and, and the situation. Um, those are general questions about prayer. But then when going through the chapter about holidays, you can suddenly see a whole Jewish annual cycle because we've really had to go through each and every holiday, uh, starting with Purim a year and a half ago, and try to think how do we mark these holidays during a pandemic. And just looking at this table of contents, again, as I'm sure looking through your own decisions in the last year and a half, um, um, can lonely elderly people join Seder by Zoom? Um, minimal Haggadah reading for lonely elder. All right, these are questions that different Jewish communities had different responses to. I think many families for the first time discovered they can do Passover Seder by Zoom. I know my father and I uh, did a whole series of sessions about how to do the fasted Seder, how to do a Seder on Zoom, how to have an extended family do Passover on Zoom. For people who are more observant, this became an issue in one way. For people of different levels of observance, they figured out how to do Zoom in, in different ways. But here's a question that uh, I don't know if you had to deal with or not. If one can't taste or smell, does one say the blessing over the matzah and the maror, right? So if you have COVID, you can't taste and smell, are you actually eating maror if you can't even taste it? And so do you say the blessing? It's the kind of question that in 50 years, someone who doesn't know anything about COVID will not understand the context of, right? But all of us can sort of smile and say, oh my God, that's such a funny situation. We've all been thinking about what happens when you lose your sense of taste and smell over the last few months. But if we wouldn't have known about this pandemic, we would be reading this in some historical response to literature. We would be quite amused by it. Um, covering a shofar with a mask. I don't know what the practice was, uh, where you were for the high holidays, right? But there was a whole debate about that uh, in my synagogue as well. Um, using hand sanitizers on Yom Kippur, uh, when you shouldn't be using hand creams, is a hand sanitizer like a hand cream or is it like washing your hands? Uh, of course, Rav Usher says it's like washing your hands, and it's not only uh, uh, okay, it's actually, it's a, it's a mitzvah, this Yom Kippur. Um, and then, can you bless the lulav while wearing gloves? Um, at the time when people were thinking that wearing gloves was a big deal, we've sort of dropped that, I think, in many ways, um, and so on and so forth. I could go through this table of contents for a long time, um, and, and there's something I feel therapeutic about just going and remembering, oh, right, that was past the first Passover Zoom. The second Passover Zoom, uh, the, the first Rosh Hashanah where we had masks on, the second Rosh Hashanah where we had masks on, who knows if we'll need to do that for a third Rosh Hashanah as well. Um, the book ends with the chapter on vaccines. And uh, I think there's something moving and kind of hopeful about ending this book with vaccines. Um, that's when I thought there would only be one volume of this book. I assume there's going to be a second volume because we're in the second year of this pandemic. Um, but just to look at the questions that he raises here uh, in the chapter of vaccines. Um, first of all, like many halakhic authorities, he was asked, what is your opinion about the vaccine? Uh, his answer is pretty simple. He said, I'm not a doctor, go ask a doctor. In fact, he says, the Talmud tells you, go ask a doctor. Um, and we'll see that in just a second when we read uh, some of his responses inside. Um, um, and then, Here's a challenging one. Kibbutz Av, if a father commands his son not to get vaccinated, right? What happens, and I think one of you raised this as a question at the beginning, what happens within my, when, within my own family, I have different levels 
of, uh, of observance of COVID in different ways? What if a father says, I expect you as my son to respect me and not get vaccine, vaccinated? Should you get vaccinated or not? Rev. Usher says you definitely should, but try to do that within conserving the relationship. And finally, a question that was very popular, saying Shekhianu over the vaccine. Is this something that we celebrate or not? Uh, and how? Rav Usher reminds us that in, in traditional uh, Jewish halacha, Shekhianu is actually, it's a very materialistic bracha. You say it over objects, a new shirt, a new pants, a new fruit, a new book. Um, you don't say Shekhianu over experiences unless they're connected to a concrete object. That was the tradition. Not everyone does that today, and I think it's great that Shekhianu has widened to also cover experiences, but for Usher Weiss, who's more of a traditionalist, she says, you can't say Shekhianu over the vaccine, but buy a new shirt, wear it when you're getting the vaccine, and say Shekhianu over the new shirt, and you'll have added simcha uh, as you go through that. Um, so I'm just going to take a moment and sort of pause and look at, back at the chat. If you have any questions, um, we're going to read one paragraph from Rav Osher Weiss, and then I want to move forward to another thinker. Um, but again, as we're going through this, really my point is for, to invite us to think back on the decisions that we made and who did we turn to in those decisions? How did we make them? We were all ethical decisors in these last questions. And I want to sort of point out three things that Rav Osher Weiss does again and again in his book um, that I think are very meaningful to us. Um, the first one is that Rav Osher tries again and again to find precedents of Jews do, dealing with pandemics uh, within Jewish tradition. And that's what any legal or halachic decisor would do, um, what any rabbi uh, does, right? We go back to Jewish history and we try to mine Jewish history um, for meaningful moments. And one of the things that Rav Osher points out is that Ju Judaism and pandemics have a very long history together. Um, Jews have been going through pandemics since the time of the Torah and the Bible. And we have behaviors uh, that we know uh, and that we've been doing. This isn't new to us. Even if it doesn't exist in my personal memory, it exists in my cultural memory. And I think that's a very important point um, to note uh, as we think about the role of culture, uh, is that um, we often think that contemporary time is the most important time. But actually, when contemporary time gives us new experiences and new challenges, what we do is we turn back as a culture to where we've been um, before. Um, one example that he gives throughout the book is of Rabbi Akiva Eger, the uh, important uh, German uh, halachic decisor uh, from the 18th century. There were numerous outbreaks of, of uh, tuberculosis during the time of Rabbi Akiva Eger. And Rabbi Akiva Eger is one of the first people to say, if you need to quarantine yourself and wear a mask, you should do that. And he also says, we're going to have synagogues meet only in groups of up to 15. And we're going to have lists. The gabbais have to keep lists of who's going to go to what minyan. Um, and actually looking at those lists, I was thinking about how Google Docs have become the list that we've had. I don't know if you've had to fill out Google Docs for which minyan you're going to show up at. Um, but suddenly think that Rabbi Akiva Eger also kept lists. They weren't Google Docs, but they were a different kind of list. There's something about that that relieves the loneliness uh, that I mentioned before. That some, there's something about recognizing that Jews have dealt with these questions Minyanim have dealt with these questions. We feel we're alone and having to make all these big decisions for the first time. And in many ways, Jews have done this question before. 
The second rule that Rav Osher Weiss um, uh, um, points out, and I think this is kind of obvious in this group, but not obvious uh, in all groups, is that he says the halachic responsibility, the Jewish responsibility in this context is to listen to what the medical authorities say. That is our halachic responsibility. Um, and so uh, we have, there are recognized medical authorities and the role of halachic leaders is to listen to and encourage other Jews to listen to, um, um, to the recognized doctors at the time. Uh, there isn't a tension between rabbinic authority and medical authority, no. Rabbinic authority turns to medical authority in questions that medical authorities are experts in. Uh, and when we recognize that the science is, uh, that the reality is moving faster than the science, we still need to listen to the best scientists we can find. Um, and that's a point he makes a few times and gives examples of rabbis who turned to medical authorities. And especially one example which he gives is that, in fact, Rabbi Akiva Eger, we talked about the Minyanin, Rabbi Akiva Eger also turns to the German police when Jews are not performing uh, his precautions of pandemic. So he describes an example where Jews went to hear Parashat Zachol, uh, the parsha you read before Purim, which is a biblical obligation. And he said over 100 Jews came to one place uh, in Germany in order to hear Zachol. And I called the police, the German police, to come and break up that minya. And I think within that story, you suddenly hear how we've been having those same experiences of tension between religious communities and sort of the secular police. And is it the role of a rabbi to tell people to call the police, the secular police, and call them to shut down a minyan? Who would ever have thought we would be in those situations? And recognizing that that has happened 200 years ago and it's happened 500 years ago is something that not only alleviates our loneliness, but also gives us a precedent uh, to hang our hat on as we're trying to make decisions that are new. Um, the last example I'll give, which is, again, uh, one that to us now might seem normal, but if we would have read this 200 years ago, eh, sorry, two years ago, it would have surprised us very much, is early on in the pandemic of Urshavais sends out a letter to the Shari Tedek hospital community and effectively closes the synagogue. Now, March 2020 was very early on in the pandemic. There weren't any synagogues closed anywhere at that point. This was the first uh, synagogue that I've been able to track that closed itself. Um, and here's how he writes it out. Notice the progression. Here. It, Many doctors are in isolation, writes Osher Weiss. And some of them, unfortunately, sadly, have contracted the disease. And there's already a shortage of medical staff and rescue volunteers in some places. And as the disease spreads, the shortage will worsen. And so it seems that all such staff and volunteers should not enter the gates of the synagogue so that they can stand and serve, and this is essential. So here's Rav Rosh Hashanah, the rabbi of the hospital, saying, I actually forbid doctors and volunteer uh, emergency staff from going to synagogue because you might end up finding yourself um, in isolation and we need you to prioritize your medical roles right now over your desire to daven in a minyan. But Jews are more stubborn than most rabbis uh, would like to believe. Um, and notice paragraph two. And here I was again seeing in the synagogue at Shari the Hospital that doctors and some of the patients still entered the synagogue gate, even though I told them not to go to synagogue. And so I ordered the synagogue or the hospital to be closed to prevent the doctors and patients from contracting the disease. 
right? And again, I, I, I kind of imagine Rabbi West sort of nodding like, well, I've done that. But two years ago, who would have thought that rabbis would be ordering synagogues shut, right? And here is a rabbi whose job it is to take care of the spiritual life of his community, saying, in order to protect the spiritual life and the physical life of this community, my spiritual obligation now is to close the synagogue. And more than that, my congregants want to go to synagogue. The patients want to go to synagogue. The doctors want to go to synagogue. And my response to you is, you cannot go to synagogue. This sort of topsy-turvy life shows that really part of big ethical questions sometimes force us to sort of renege all of our basic obligations because there are more basic obligations uh, uh, to, to uphold. Um, so these are small moments, I think, in many ways. It's just a note that was put up over the bar doors of the synagogue at Shari Tzedek. But I think, again, turning this into the story that we tell about this pandemic. And I'll say again, I don't think there's anything that special about Rabbi Osher Weiss in, in this way. I think there have been rabbis and halachic decisors and leaders of religious communities across the world who have made these same decisions. We need to tell their story just as we tell the stories of our own small decisions that we've made in our families um, throughout the last year and a half. Which brings me to the second part of the session. Um, and I'm going to make a bit of a turn to the New York Times. Um, and you might think this is a very different uh, genre of writing than halachic writings. Um, but I, as we'll see, the questions are very similar. Uh, and some of the answers are very similar as well, not just in what the content of the answer is, but in how you get about giving these answers in many ways. So one of my favorite parts of the New York Times after I finished reading the Sunday Vows, uh, I'm glad to be back in the United States and be able to read the, the print copy of the New York Times. I've been teaching my 14-year-old how you read the Sunday New York Times. It's an important, so, you know, there's how to read the Parsha with Rashi, and then there's how to read the, the New York Times on a Sunday morning. Um, so uh, I've been teaching her to read The Ethicist. Um, the Ethicist for the last, I think, seven years has been written by an NYU uh, philosophy professor called Kwame Anthony Appiah, who's half British, half Ghanaian, um, a, a brilliant writer. I don't agree with him on all of his uh, uh, decisions, but he has a great way of, of, of uh, laying out the questions. Um, and over the going through the New York Times archive, and going through the questions, they haven't been collected yet, although maybe that's something that would be worthwhile. You get the same experience of going through a Porsche Vice's question. So let's just look at a few of these questions as well. This is March 30th, 2020, a year and a half ago. I was supposed to have a friend over, but she and her husband were ill, so we rescheduled. Since then, she has become very ill with coronavirus-like symptoms. She thinks it's just the flu but will not see a doctor or explore testing options. Can I move the date again because I did not want to risk infection? The dinner, though casual, is to celebrate my friend's birthday. That's the question. It's such a small question. How many events have we all canceled in the last year and a half because of COVID? But early on, we were so confused that even such small questions were caused to write to the newspaper about. Suddenly you realize Canceling or not canceling to celebrate my friend's birthday is an ethical question. It's an ethical question because she doesn't think she's ill and she wants to meet. She doesn't want me to cancel on her birthday. And if I cancel on her birthday, what kind of a friend am I? But on the other hand, there's this developing situation, which is different and new. Um, and Anthony Appiah writes very clearly. He says, um, you are right to be diligent about this. Tell your friend to get tested. Even if it's just the flu, 
at a time like this, March 2020, we should not be uh, con contracting any kinds of diseases. And even though she will be hurt by your decision, the right ethical decision is to tell her she needs to postpone the birthday. Uh, little did they know that if she was postponing the birthday, it would take another year and three months, so they probably could meet again, right? Um, but just a small situation becomes a big ethical uh, decision. Then there are historical moments that make it even more challenging. Here's a question that was posted during the Black Lives Matters protests this summer. Um, and no matter what you think about those protests, um, looking at the questions that were raised during those, that time, I think it is very, it's very interesting ethically. This is the question. In normal times, I would feel an obligation to take part in the recent protests against police brutality. I'm worried, however, that these gatherings could lead to a coronavirus outbreak. Uh, Black Americans are suffering from COVID-19 disproportionately high rate. I don't want to endanger the very lives that this movement is seeking to protect. I've done what I can to speak out in other ways, from signing petitions, making donations, and so on. Is it ethical, last line, is it ethical to support these protests only from a distance, right? I find that this question is the corollary of going to shul in many ways, right? If we say that uh, Rabbi Heschel was said he was protesting with his feet uh, at Selma. So this is the same kind of question. My community is gathering together, congregating to do what seems to them crucial, what is in many ways pikuach nefesh. Should I participate? Or if this is dangerous, Right? Should I not participate? What do I do? Um, now, in his response, which again, we're, we're focusing on the questions and not the answers, you do have the full answer in your PDF, but I just want to notice two things about the answer. One is that you can see the gravity with which um, Anthony Appiah relates to the situation. It's not like canceling a birthday. Participating in these protests has the opportunity to change social situation and potentially save lives. On the other hand, we might be risking lives if we get people contaminated, if we infected uh, as part of the protests. What do we do? How do we balance out those questions? He, in that situation, turns back to history. Like Rabbi Osher Weiss giving examples of Rabbi Akiva Eger, here Anthony Appiah turns back to, um, uh, to, um, yeah, to 1965, to John Lewis going over the bridge uh, in Selma and says, we have a tradition that even if it comes at a risk to us, we will still protest. And that's a tradition that we, if we see that tradition, then we should still protest even though it comes at a risk. However, he says, this isn't a great analogy because there the risk was only to the people protesting, all right, and some. But if you protest here, you might be risking people who weren't even at the protest because you're infecting. So this example is not so helpful. It's not a help. And he decides in the end to go in a different path from that example. But again, bringing up the example alleviates some of the loneliness of this question, right? Anyone going out to a protest has had to deal with the question of the risks. His answer at the, at the bottom line, I'll tell you, is he says he thinks that since it's outdoors and if you're protecting yourselves, it would be OK to go to the protests. But he says if you are obligated to someone who is in danger uh, or who, if they do get coronavirus, would be um, it would be at risk. In that case, I said, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to go to the protests. So there's sort of an ethical balance of our different obligations in different ways. Um, and again, I feel like this question is, it's not just, it, it goes to the ways in which um, our most important loyalties have been tested in this last year and a half. 
and the places where we feel are give us energy, which are congregating together, um, again, becomes something that is challenging. Um, let me give just one last question from here. Uh, and then we're, I want to read one more. Uh, we'll open up for questions and read one last question from Usher Weiss. Um, there's questions about, can I go to a different state to get a vaccine? I don't know if people here had that question. I don't know how Massachusetts was in getting vaccines, but is it okay to go to a different state to, to get a vaccine? Um, uh, Apia's response is that we are uh, doing this as a nation. So state lines are not, uh, should not be an issue, but you shouldn't lie either. If you're asked if you are from a different state and therefore told you can't have the vaccine, don't lie, don't fake anything. So we should not, uh, we should not uh, change our integrity, um, uh, forsake our integrity because of that. Um, my favorite question here um, is one that might resonate as well, which is intergenerational tensions. Um, here's the question. I recently discovered that my sister lied to our elderly parents about being vaccinated with COVID-19. She has no plans to get vaccinated and told them she has done so only to allay their anxieties. Of all my siblings, she has the most direct content, contact with our parents. Uh, so here is my sister is behaving badly. Don't sisters just love to point out how their sisters are behaving badly? Right? I have four uh, daughters who spend much time on that. Um, but the question gets more complicated. I am not close with her and was stunned when, in a rare conversation, she divulged what she'd done. Our parents have been diligent about masking, distancing, and getting vaccinated. When they believed she'd been vaccinated, they allowed her back into their home unmasked. They are now making summer vacation plans that include her and involve staying together. My sister's omission has put me in an awkward position. COVID-19 is dangerous and deadly, especially for people over 60. Vaccines are not 100% effective. This is even before they knew about breakthrough um, infections June 15th, right? This is not so long ago, but already the world has changed in so many ways. Our parents have a right to know the vaccination status of those with whom they spend time indoors unmasked. What's the best way for me to approach this? Should I insist my sister tell them the truth and give her a small time frame to do so before I tell them myself? All right, let's just notice the various ethical questions that are being dealt here, right? There's a question of honesty. My sister isn't being honest with her parents. On the other hand, can I break her confidence to tell something to my parents, to be a tattletale, right? We're not 13, eight years old anymore, two sisters in the house. We're adults making adult decisions. Um, I'm, I think I dropped this sentence, but somewhere in the longer version of this question, she says that her sister takes care of her parents more than she does. So she's also feeling guilty uh, that she's further away from her parents in some ways, and the sister is, is the one who's carrying the responsibility. So, so much tension in this small ethical question uh, and yet the questions of how we um, conserve relationships and yet keep up honesty and at the same time keep loyalties versus the question of uh, competing loyalties, the loyalty to the sister versus the loyalty to the parent. Uh, for Anthony Appiah, the question is clear. As Usher Weiss also says, pikuach nefesh is more important than honesty and confidence and loyalties. Pikuach nefesh is what matters here. And he says, you have the right to call your parents immediately and tell them what your sister has done. If you want to, you can give your sister fair warning. Uh, but he says the ethical case in, in, in this case, it's one of the rare cases where he's very cutting in his decision um, and so on. So I'm gonna pause here. There's one more question I wanna end with uh, from going back to Osher Weiss, but I wanna pause for a second, both open it up for questions and you can unmute yourself, I, I think, um, to ask. 
but also just think as we let's just pause for a second and reflect as we've read these questions um, that were brought up to Rav Osher Weiss and to uh, Kwame Anthony Apia, three things that 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 we noticed. One is how quickly we've forgotten the many questions that we've asked over the last year and a half. How very little attention we've been able to give them, either because we've been busy, because every week there's new questions, but also because we're not used to these situations where big ethical questions are suddenly happening in our own kitchen, in our WhatsApp messages or our iMessages, uh, in our relationship with each other. Second of all, the question of conflicting loyalties, our loyalty to davening every day or to participating in social protests versus our loyalty to staying safe. Um, and what happens when the very institutions that give us strength and spiritual sustenance are the ones that endanger us in so many ways? And how do we prioritize them in different ways? And finally, I think what happened more, what became clearer and clearer throughout this pandemic, became more, more complicated, is how human relationships and honesty are a big issue. And how much openness and honesty plays a role. And how does that compete? with the question of protecting one's lives. So we wanna be honest in our dealings. We wanna be open. We wanna keep issues in confidence on one hand. On the other hand, when the question is a danger to one's life, um, that trumps questions of honesty or trumps questions of confidence. And it will also trump um, in the situations, in the loyalties that we have to our communities in certain situations. So let's take a moment for questions or thoughts um, I see Jack has a question, so. Yes, my question talked earlier about people who are sick, of their behavior. But from my perspective, you didn't address the fact that those people's behavior not just affects them, but it puts other people at serious risk. And it also possibly is helping to contribute to real problems in our healthcare system where doctors and nurses are leaving because they can't stand the stress of working in that environment. So the, my question is how much empathy do I owe people who are acting in ways that endanger innocent people? Right. Thank you, Amy's pointing out. Audrey, thank you for your question. Um, um, I think that we, uh, empathy is something I saw that would come up in some of the comments as well, right? How much empathy do we need to have for people who are transgressing, who are putting us at risk? Um, and I would suggest based on some, uh, some of the Talmudic writings on this is that there are two different types of empathy. There's a basic human empathy, which we need to always hold on to, connected to people's human dignity, to their tzalem Elohim. So praying for someone like in that question, um, for, from Osher Weiss, we will always pray for people to be healthy. We have no intention, and we definitely are not going to be the mitigators to say, you, you, you are out of my list of davening for you. Someone never leaves our list of davening for them. Not in the sorry Christian sense of praying for your soul to be saved, um, but rather in the sense of uh, hoping that you are well. Uh, asking good for other people. On the other hand, having empathy for people does not mean lowering the uh, boundaries that we set around our communities and our families in order to keep ourselves safe. And there's a difference between those two. So I can have maximum empathy, but at the same time, maximum safeguards, precautions. And, and also, in that sense, my empathy doesn't mean that I'm going to lie for you or that I'm going to lie to my parents 
or that I'm going to put my parents in a state of situation. I have full empathy for your situation, but I also will not put my parents at risk. That's what we saw in that last question. So the same situation, I think, in many ways, 100% empathy, but also 100% safeguarding the precautions that we have for medical situations. That's sort of the way I would, I would call the ethical situation. And I think in some ways, um, the midst of empathy is important because we're in such uh, a toxic environment. It's easy to talk about pluralism and tolerance when, uh, when the stakes aren't very high. It's very hard to talk about pluralism and tolerance when the stakes are high. And the stakes right now are very high across a whole series of social issues. And at the same time, that doesn't, that, that, this is when our empathy is tested, right? It doesn't mean that we're not going to stand stringently by our positions. Um, but Dafka, more empathy, I think, is needed in this time in order to sustain the machloket, right? So not to be confused. Empathy doesn't mean not having a stringent machloket. Empathy is actually needed as a fuel in order to allow ourselves to stay in the machloket and not to write each other out in some ways. Um, um, so I see a question here from, from Steve, right? There's going to be a big football game today. The game is without masks and no vaccination protocol. We're watching in bars. What responsibility do we have to point out the ethics of the situation for the Boston community, right? And this is kind of a question in Jewish parlance. We would call this, right? should not be a bystander when someone else's blood is being let, right? If we see that people are about to engage in behavior that is harmful to them, do we have an obligation to stop and stand and do something? Um, at the same time, the Talmud also says, right, that it is a mitzvah to say a tochecha, to say a rebuke that will be heard, but it is also a mitzvah to be silent if that tochecha will not be heard. Um, and so how do you figure out, is it a mitzvah for me to speak up now, or is it a mitzvah for me to be silent? Um, and there isn't any one answer to that question. I think the real question relates to what is your standing um, it, with regard to these people? If you will be heard by them, if you're someone of some sort of moral um, uh, uh, standing in their eyes, not in your own eyes, but in their eyes, then their mitzvah would be to speak up because it might make, it, it might make things better. But if you are not in a side of moral standing, then the mitzvah might be to be quiet at this time because it's not going to make it any better. This isn't that different from 150 years ago. Jews saying, oh, my cousin stopped keeping Shabbat, right? That's endangering his soul. Do I go and protest outside his house before he goes to work on Shabbos morning in the Lower East Side? Or do I have to stay silent at this time and keep him engaged in the Jewish community, right? So figuring out these questions relates to our moral standing. And in that sense, I would say, and I'm curious what you think about this as well, is sort of how important it is that we keep up the relationships so that we have a moral standing in other people's eyes, right? If my cousin isn't being vaccinated um, and I find that really hard, if I stop communicating with them, then I will have no moral standing in their eyes no matter what. If I keep up the relationship, then I will be able to keep having a moral standing in their eyes and maybe then they'll be able to hear me and they'll have some sort of question. Um, but I, I find that all ethical questions in the end go back to the, um, to the, uh, to the relationships that are upholding. Um, okay, and um, let's look at the last question here from, uh, um, and this is uh, from our packet. And this is a question 
um, from September 2020, so exactly a year ago. It appears on page four of your um, of your packet if you're looking in the PDF, and it's a question that um, was sent to Rav Osherweiss by a teacher in Queens who had a student at seminary who then graduated and became a nurse in a New York hospital. Uh, New York had had a very tough summer as far as the pandemic, and she wrote to her rabbi in Queens. The rabbi in Queens sent the letter to Rav Osherweiss. He felt this was too heavy a question for him to answer himself. And Rav Osherweiss writes back to her uh, on the day before Yom Kippur. He writes, I am in short response to the painful question of one of your former students. And I will admit and not be ashamed that when I read this girl's question, my eyes flowed with tears to the pain and the righteousness of this daughter of Israel. This 22-year-old woman works as a nurse specializing in respiratory diseases at a large hospital in New York. At the height of the epidemic there, when thousands and tens of thousands contracted the virus and fell ill, after completing a hard day and a busy shift, she was asked by the ward director to stay overnight due to severe manpower shortages and agreed with her dedication to patients and deep understanding of the mitzvah. So she stayed later than her shift on one of the most intense days of the pandemic. After about 20 hours of continuous and strenuous work without any break, a patient arrived at three in the morning. This patient arrived with severe breathing difficulties and an irregular pulse as he fluttered between life and death. While distributing instructions to staff members and resuscitation operations, she connected the patient to the respirator machine. But as his condition deteriorated and she noticed that she accidentally switched between the pipes, and did not connect him to the machine properly. She notes in her letter that due to the shortage of respirators, the hospital received outdated machines designed for home use that were unfamiliar to the hospital staff, which is what caused the mistake in addition to exhaustion and fatigue after 20 hours of work. The nurse says she immediately corrected the mistake, but soon the doctors were forced to determine the man's death. She states in her letter that since the incident she has not stopped crying and is beside herself with grief. While her classmates, due to shuva in response to fears that they might have spoken Lashon Hara to their friends or that they, that they have not respected their bubby enough, she has to deal with her conscience lest she has lost one soul from Israel. In the eve of Yom Kippur, she asked herself how she can obtain forgiveness and atonement. This is a, maybe the seventh time I've taught this tshuva, and it's chilling every time. And mm. right here's a nurse, a young woman, um, turning to her community rabbi, to her seminary rabbi, because she is beyond herself with guilt. And it's erev yom kippur, and everyone around her erev yom kippur, they're worried that they have spoken lashon hara. Maybe they offended their cousin. Maybe they didn't treat their bubby right. Um, but she hears in a situation where she feels that she's contributed to someone's death and she's a nurse. She's supposed to contribute to people's life. How to deal with such an experience at such a moment, how much loneliness uh, is set between the lines of this question. And can Jewish tradition offer any sort of respite, any support as she's trying to deal with this guilt on Erev Yom Kippur? Um, Rabbi Weiss writes, uh, uh, the, the answer is longer than this paragraph, but I just quoted this one 
to give you the gist of things. He says, and I say, may this righteous woman calm her conscience and strengthen her spirit. For while her friends will be rewarded for refraining from the Shonhara and for properly honoring their grandmother, she will be rewarded for saving many souls and sustaining many worlds. For our rabbis taught, one who saves one life of Israel, it is as if they saved a whole world. Right. Rav Asher Weiss points out that um, this woman has saved many lives and she has many merits for the life she saved. He also makes a point made by Nachmanides, a famous doctor, right, from the 12th century. Nachmanides points out that halakhically, a doctor has protection from malpractice, not just under American insurance laws, but also under Dinei Shamayim, right? The doctor of the, the heavens. Doctors, nurses have a right to perform medical actions and protection if they make mistakes uh, from heaven for that. And so he says, you are totally fine. Rest assured that what you have done is not horrendous, but in fact, moral bravery. Uh, and you can enter this Yom Kippur uh, with an open heart and knowing that uh, there are no sins uh, in, that, in that regard. Um, ending with this question, I think for me, is, is really about recognizing uh, our first responders and how much people who have found themselves in extreme situations. But I also want to point out that I think that community leaders, rabbis, I'm biased in this sense, um, but the board members of community com communities have found themselves as being in some ways first-line responders, responding to community situations that have been um, uh, very intense indeed. Uh, and really that in many ways, you know, we celebrate the first responders, we celebrate our community leaders, but all of us in the questions that we've had to deal with in the last year and a half have found ourselves being ethical decisors of questions of life and death of basic relationships, of truth and lies, of conflicting loyalties. And we've had to wade through those questions. As we reflect on this year and a half, and as we seek the power, uh, the koach, to get through the next uh, series of challenges that surely lie ahead in the year to come, um, telling the stories of the decisions that we've made, discussing them with our families, maybe bringing some of these questions to your next Shabbos meal, um, and just sharing them and recognizing that we aren't the only ones who've had these questions, we aren't the only ones who've had to make these decisions, but when we've made them, we felt less lonely. Uh, we felt supported, supported by knowing that we've made a, an ethical decision. Maybe we made a mistake, but we tried to make the best ethical decision we've made, but also supported by a tradition of asking ethical questions um, and trying to find the answers within that, from the Talmud to Rabbi Akiva Eger to, um, to the protests at Selma, to the questions that we've been asking ourselves in our communities and our shuls and our hospitals over the last year. So that's part of what I wanted to share with you as you open this session on ethics. Um, and I hope that you found this uh, not only uh, meaningful as you think about your own ethical questions, but also uh, giving you some koach uh, as you seek to, um, um, to, to, to wade through the ethical questions that uh, surely lie ahead for all of us. Uh, Michelle, um, I just want to say thank you so much. This was just a tonic to the soul. Uh, this was just so incredibly helpful. Um, first of all, we've not had any sessions like this. I mean, this is our 40th Hartman session, but this is our first session where we talked explicitly about the ethical issues that real people face in their kitchens and in their homes. Um, and, uh, and every person on this call could relate to every issue that you brought up. Uh, and bringing up the questions through the prism of Rav Usher, 
who just seems, I mean, I, I want Rob Usher to be my rabbi. I don't know if he would do that, but I love, just love his voice and Kwame Anthony Appiah and the combination and the creative tension and how they uh, really deal with the same issues with wisdom was beautiful. But I also just want to say, Michelle, I love your voice. Uh, your voice is also a tonic to the soul. Um, some of the things that you, I mean, that you talked about are takeaways that I will carry into the next week and into the next weeks and months. Like, let nobody get off your prayer list. Uh, keep everybody on your prayer list. Uh, and, the, and, and being able to have a lot of heart and love and empathy for the human um, and also be machmir on your own standards to preserve life and to be able to do both of those. And then the notion of keeping up relationships, even with people who make decisions that are very injurious to themselves and to others. And so you are appropriately outraged by their decisions, but you keep up relationships so that you continue to have moral standing. There's just a generosity and gentleness and wisdom to your voice that is so hard to have and so desperately needed for our world. So, Michelle, I cannot mm -hmm. thank you enough thank you. for great, great Torah. Thank you. And Amy and Brian, thank you. Our next session is November the 14th. Um, let's keep up the light of Hartman mm -hmm. learning. It's just one of the great blessings we have in this season. Michelle, thank you. Amy, Brian, thank you. And thank all you all. Have a good week. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.